Well, if you could turn in the Word of God this morning to Acts chapter 17, the book of Acts, and the 17th chapter. We had a good time on Friday evening, very glad for fellowship and the sense of the Lord's presence and the Lord giving us a word that was very encouraging, certainly for my own heart, I think for other hearts as well. The Lord was pleased to meet with us, always glad for His presence, for His sense presence, for His felt presence, with the Lord drawing near and helping us. Understand, I just heard this just before I get up into the pulpit, that there's a couple uh, of ladies here from Atlanta this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you, embarrass you by asking where you are, but you're very welcome this morning. Trust the Lord will, will bless you. You've traveled a long way to be with us, and we trust you'll feel at home. There they are. <laughs> well, you're not so easily embarrassed. Good to see you, sisters. Lord, encourage you with us here this morning, and uh, may we be a blessing to you. Acts chapter 17, we're going to read the opening 10 verses. Acts chapter 17, let's read from verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief woman not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." When they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Amen. Trust the Lord will bless the very reading of His Word this morning. Let's still our hearts momentarily in prayer. Let's all of us seek the Lord and call upon the name of our God in heaven. Father, we come momentarily with the Word of God open before us. Thankful for all that has proceeded. Our hearts have been encouraged hearts have been challenged, and we pray that it will not be in vain. We ask that Thou wilt just lead us on, gently, but with progress. We pray we will not grow stagnant in the Christian life. We pray we'll always be going forward, pressing toward the mark. We pray that Thou wilt enable us then, by Thy grace, even today, to hear the Word that will help us in this endeavor, that it might come in the power and demonstration of the Spirit, that the Word will have free course, that it will enter in freely and powerfully into our lives and hearts, 
that thou wilt answer the prayer of our Lord Jesus who asked, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Prepares for the table of the Lord. May it please thee to do thine own work in all of our hearts. And fill this preacher now with the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During the almost four years that I was in Calgary, usually during the Lord's Day services, I was in some form of study. Three of them were topical, one on revival, another one on the church, and then one that was also on certain biblical characters. I think there was 13 different biblical characters or thereabouts that we dealt with. But the bulk of my ministry was spent going through various books. And in the four years that I was there, morning and evening services, we went through the entirety of the book of Leviticus, the entirety of the book of Ruth, the entirety of the book of Philippians and Philemon. And then in the evening time, I think it was 117 messages on the Gospel of John. It took me the, just over three years to get through it uh, with breaks in between here and there. I'm not opposed to topical studies. I'm not opposed to doing that as I, I did it there and I will, may do it here as well. But the bulk of my ministry, the bulk of what I endeavor to apply myself to and where my heart leans more joyfully perhaps, just on a personal level, is the verse-by-verse exposition of the Word of God, at least on the Lord's Day particularly. The same was true when I was in Australia. I was there for two years, and that was, again, basically what I did there. First John, I think I did Philippians there as well, and a few other studies on that occasion. And in the months leading up to coming here, I was thinking much about what to preach. Where are we going to go? What are we going to look at together? What will the Lord have for us as a congregation? And for whatever reason, where my mind first anchored, it never removed, it never changed. I thought first of 1 Thessalonians, and then also of the Gospel of Luke. And that's where we're going. If you're reading the bulletin, you will see that. And so in the morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians, and in the evening, the Gospel of Luke. There may be occasions we'll preach something else, but this will be the bulk of our study for the coming months. And in the case of Luke, (laughs) years. I don't know how long, but long enough, I'm sure. As we come to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, it is, of course, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and its content is very encouraging. If I hadn't already preached Philippians, that's probably where I would have began. It's so full of joy. But having already preached that book recently, at least in the last few years, and I think actually, if memory serves me right, it's coming to my mind, I think Reverend Mercer preached that not that long ago as well here, so... So in the province of God, we're not there, we're in 1 Thessalonians. And it also is a very encouraging book. In fact, perhaps it's one of those churches that just brought, for the most part, just joy to the apostle's life, to his heart, as every time he remembered them, it was with gratitude and thanksgiving because of what God had accomplished in that city and what was being done there. Now, they're not a perfect church, We'll, we'll learn that in due course, but they are, in some ways, a model church. There are many things to learn in a positive way from them. And I thought it would be a a platform of encouragement to begin our studies here looking at them. So, as we come to 1 Thessalonians, we are brought to the the planting of that church in the book of Acts. And thankfully we have the history of it here in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look at that as really kind of something of an introduction here uh, this morning, considering how this church was planted. Now, Paul, when he writes to them later on, as we'll look at 1 Thessalonians, 
he is very encouraged by the report that he receives because he had to leave very quickly because of the persecution that we've read of here. He is basically driven out of the city and heads to Berea. But uh, he, he wants to hear how they're getting on. And we learn from First Thessalonians that he, he sends uh, Timothy back to, to discover, to, to find out what's going on in the city and whether or not the people of God are going forward. In fact, if you, if you go to First Thessalonians just for a moment to see how encouraging the, the language is that the Apostle Paul uses. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we'll look at verse 13. He says, chapter 2, verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, and so on and so forth. So he's very encouraged by this report that they have experienced tremendous persecution like the Jewish believers, but they continue to press on and they receive the Word of God as it is the very Word of truth. If you look also at chapter 3, and in fact, even verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And he says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. It's good to be able to say that about a church. You are our glory and joy. Verse 5 of chapter 3. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means a tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So he receives tremendous comfort. He says in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God. The Lord had done a tremendous work there, and his heart is basically bursting with joy. You can see also in chapter 4, verse 9, it comes through as well. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. I think the sense there is, you have been taught of God, and you have exercised that teaching practically, loving the saints. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Continue to do what I'm hearing you're doing. But perhaps the chapter that most in embraces this joy of the Apostle Paul is chapter 1. And we'll get to that in due course. I'm not going to read it here this morning. You read down through the language of chapter 1. The whole chapter is basically Paul rejoicing in what God had done in them and through them. His heart, therefore, as we've read over these verses, as well as taking in chapter 1, is just bubbling over with joy. He is so thankful for what God has accomplished there in Thessalonica. Now, of course, we might read this and think, well, Paul likes to just be an encouragement to people. And sure, he likes to encourage people. But if you read the rest of his epistles, you will know at times he had need to chasten and to correct 
and to deal very firmly with them for errors that were being manifest in the various congregations. And yet here, there's very little that he has to deal with in that sense. Now, as we come then to deal with this, and really, this morning is more introductory. In some ways, I don't like introductory messages. You kind of get bogged down painting the scene and so on. You just want to get to the text. But I don't think that should happen this morning. I think we should be encouraged as we come to Acts chapter 17. The first point we want to deal with here this morning is the backdrop. The backdrop. And if you were going to really entitle the, the life of the church at Thessalonica, um, you might say suffering yet prevailing. Suffering yet prevailing. Because that's how the church started. And the first Thessalonians seems to kind of hone in on the fact that they were a suffering people, but they were prevailing greatly by the grace of God. So let us consider first then the backdrop. On a second missionary journey, we find the Apostle Paul coming into this city. Thessalonica, or Thessalonica as some people like to call it. It was first called Thermae. In the year 315 BC, Thessalonica as a city was founded by a Greek general, Cassander, named after, and he named the city after his wife, who was, I think, for memory, what I was reading was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So there's, there's a, this is a time of, of tremendous kind of movement and change within that region. And he chose this particular city because of its strategic location. One commentator notes on the material aspect of this city, he says, quote, The great success of Thessalonica was due in grand part to the union of land and sea, road and port, which facilitated commerce between Macedonia and the entire Roman Empire, end quote. And eventually, of course, the Romans conquered the Greeks, and from 146 BC, Thessalonica was named the capital of Macedonia. And by Paul's day, it had around 200,000 people living in the city. And with all that concentration of people comes the concentration of sin and vice and the need for the gospel. Now initially, as the Apostle Paul sought to embark on his second missionary effort, he was desirous to stay on the east of the Aegean Sea. You will know that, that he, he, wanted to, he tried to get into this place, but the Spirit forbade him, and so on and so forth. And he's trying to stay in that region, east of the Aegean Sea. And yet, he, as, he, as he laments over the fact that every door seems to be closed, then he has this vision where appeared that man of Macedonia saying unto him, quote, come over into Macedonia and help us. Come here. Come over the Aegean Sea. Come into this region and help us. I sometimes wondered why or how the Apostle Paul knew it was a man of Macedonia. And apparently it was because they, they wore these broad-brimmed hats. And, and maybe that may have been the case of what his attire was, that he was able to tell this is a Macedonian. I don't know, maybe just the Spirit revealed it unto him that this was a Macedonian. I'm not sure how. But, but even more importantly, I've always been struck by the fact that what he said to him was, come over and help us. Come over and help us. Now if you just stop for a moment, and this is what we don't do. If you just stop for a minute, and if I was to say to you, if someone says to you, come and help me, well what would that look like? You might need to know the context, of course. In what way can I help you? What do you need help with? And if you were to just, again, put yourself in the shoes of the apostle, as it were, but try to bring in the context of our day and generation, and imagine that a church was trying to determine, or certain Christians were trying to determine, here's a man over here and he's saying, come and help us. Very often, our first response would be to the material. We would think, well, we need to gather funds. 
Or perhaps we need more manpower because there's buildings that need to be built. Schools that need to be erected. Hospitals that need to be manned. These things, this is, this is the kind of help that is needed. But whenever that man in that vision said, come over and help us, not for one second did anything cross the mind of the apostle except for this. They need the gospel. And that's what it goes on to say. If you go back to chapter 16, you'll see it for yourself. After he had seen the vision, verse 10, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. It wasn't in some charitable endeavor. It's not some philanthropic effort. It's, it's the gospel. And Paul was about the preaching of the gospel. And when that man said, come and help us, the only thing that crossed his mind, the only thing that entered into his heart is, I need to get the gospel there. And so they went there to preach the gospel. There's application there that I don't want to spend too much time upon, but I want us as a church to keep that focus. That the help that we are to Greenville is that we bring them the gospel. Now I am not against certain other efforts and certain other, if we can call it, ministries. I'm not against them. I'm not against reaching out to those who are in poverty. I'm not against those who may be orphaned and need help and the help of Christians to come alongside. I'm not against them that at all. But the priority of our help, the priority of our focus in this city has to be First and foremost, the preaching of the gospel. If we get away from that, if we get sidetracked from that, we've missed the point of our existence here on Haywood Road. We are called to preach the gospel. God has given us this mandate. This is the greatest help we can be to this community. And yes, there may be other opportunities and other doors that open up. And I'm open to hear about them and open to send you to encourage you in whatever way you can help in other ways. But if we lose sight of the gospel, we've lost our mission. We've lost our primary purpose. We are called to help. And indeed, when any door opens up, the question we should be asking ourselves is, how are we to get the gospel here? How are we to apply the gospel in this area of need? I mean, that was always the case, even in the past, when godly men, I think of Spurgeon, I think of Mueller. I think of others who has established orphanages, for example. And, and the, the primary purpose wasn't just because these little children deserve this, but they need the gospel. They need to hear about Jesus Christ. They need to be instructed in the Word. Yes, there's empathy to their condition. And there's a sense of brokenness to the needs of those that are around us. For sure, that is true. But if it reaches merely to the material and putting food before them, or whatever else the need might be, again, we have missed the point, beloved. There has to be, foundationally, whenever we hear the world saying, come and help, that it is in regard to the Gospel. Regardless of whatever new ideas arise and arguments that are given, how a church helps a community is primarily by preaching the Gospel. And so they make their way across the Aegean Sea, heading west, and they arrive first at Philippi, where in spite of some opposition and a memorable imprisonment, where Paul and Silas were there and they at midnight sing praises to God and there's an earthquake and then the, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, there's a church that's established there regardless of all that is going on. And thereafter, of course, they make their way to chapter 17 of the book of Acts 
where they come through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. So that's something of the backdrop of this, uh, the establishment and planting of this church. Let us then secondly consider this morning the biblical foundation for this church, the biblical foundation. When Paul arrives in the city, he followed his usual practice. You'll see it in verse 2. Look there with me. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He comes into the synagogue of the Jews, and this is his manner. He goes in there to reason with the Scriptures. Verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This is his manner. This is his way. In Philippi, there was no synagogue. When he went to that city, I'm not sure if he was aware ahead of time. But he goes there, there's no synagogue, and then he goes to the riverside. Because when there weren't ten heads of families, there couldn't be the establishment of a synagogue. And so for whatever reason, in spite of the scale of Philippi as a city, there weren't many Jews, male Jews that were there. And so there was no synagogue that had been established. And so if there were Jews, then they would go by the river every Sabbath day and they would weep. They would pray. They would long that God would establish a witness in that city and in that area. And so with no synagogue, Paul then goes to the river where, sure enough, there are ladies that are gathered there praying. And they resorted there to seek the Lord. And of course, he comes and he preaches the gospel to them. And the Lord opens Lydia's heart and she's converted. And there's an establishment of a church in that city. Now, when he comes to Thessalonica, there's already a synagogue. And of course, because of the industry there, where there's good industry, where there's business to be had, you're likely to find Jews establishing there uh, with the, the kind of business mind and economic mentality that many of them have. So that's certainly the case in this city. And Paul goes in to the synagogue to preach Christ. Now, why did he go to the Jews first? number of reasons may be given. The gospel came first to the Jew, but also to the Greek. That may be one foundational application. But there's also practical reasons why he would go. If Paul went in and spoke to the Gentiles first, the Jews would never receive him. They would say, that's a message for the Gentiles, it's not for us. And so by focusing upon Jews first, the hope is that some of them would be converted, and then they would help in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as well. But if he prioritized the Gentiles, the Jews would never, never listen to him, never give any credence to his message. And so there are practical reasons why he would go and evangelize the Jews first. And so this is what he does. Now look at verse 3. It says, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and so on. This word opening is very interesting. It's found eight times in the New Testament. Most of them, and you could maybe argue all of them, relate to miraculous activity. God doing something miraculous. For example, in Mark chapter 7, it's used in relation to Christ opening the ears and loosing the tongue of one that was deaf and dumb. It's used three times in Luke chapter 24. First, with the two on the road to Emmaus. We read in verses 31 and 32, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us by the way, and while he, note it, opened to us the Scriptures. And then again, in the midst of the apostles, later in that chapter, verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand 
the Scriptures. It is then also used in Acts chapter 16 in relation to what happened with Lydia and her heart. The Lord opened her heart. So Luke is using this word very often. In fact, more than any other writer of the New Testament. And whenever you come to this word and you look at it and you see its usage, it's very, very interesting, as I've said to you. So as, as, he, as we're drawn here, and, and Luke says he comes and he opens and alleges that he, this is the word he uses, there's something spiritual going on here. There's high, high, a very concentrated sense of it being a spiritual activity. Because when you go back to Luke chapter 24, and you go back to Acts chapter 16, and you see that sense of hearts being opened and minds being opened and so on, on the opening of the Scriptures, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is there in the opening. That the opening is attended by the Spirit of God. I mean, you can study it for yourself. In fact, go back to Luke chapter 24 just to see it for yourself. I'm concerned you might miss it. And it's the same writer, Luke, that is using the same word and terminology. Luke chapter 24, verse 31. Now these are the two in the road to Emmaus. Just follow with me here. and see This word open and the context in which it's used. Verse 31 of Luke 24. And their eyes were opened and they knew that Him. Now if you go back, you will find that they were, they were not able to see Him. They weren't able to discern who He was. And so um, here their eyes become open to who the One is that is before them. So there's a spiritual thing that happens here. There's a reason why they couldn't see Him before and didn't understand that it was Jesus Christ that was right with them. But now their eyes are open. That's something the Holy Spirit did. That's something that Christ desired for them. And so then they knew Him. Verse 32, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us, while He talked with us by the way, and while He opened to us the Scriptures? So Christ opens the Scriptures. And as He opens the Scriptures, now they had had the Scriptures open many times. These are people who are familiar with the Scriptures. They know them from beginning to end. But on this occasion, as this man, whom they later at this point find out is even Jesus Christ Himself, risen from the dead, when He opens the Scriptures, their heart burns. They would go to the synagogue, they would go to the temple many times, and they would just hear the Word, and nothing would happen. There would be no impact. But now this man, he is opening the Scriptures, beginning at Moses. And showing all the things concerning himself to them. As he does that, their hearts begin to burn. There's something spiritual going on with this opening. And the same happens, of course, later on. When you look at verse 45 of the same chapter, where they're in the midst of the apostles this time. The eleven are there. And they're all meeting and talking about the fact the Lord has been risen from the dead. Verse 45 says, Then opened He, this is Jesus Christ, their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So you see, again, this spiritual activity, their understanding gets opened by the Spirit of God in relation to the Scriptures. If you go to Acts 16, you'll see the very same thing. Acts 16, verse 14, when it tells us about Lydia, a seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Well, what was Paul speaking about? Well, the same thing he was speaking about when he came to Thessalonica. He comes into that city and he opens and alleges that Christ must needs have suffered 
and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Now what is our point here this morning? Our point is this. There's something profoundly spiritual in the opening up of the Scriptures and pointing to Jesus Christ. It is not just a communication of information. It is not just that you open up the Bible and you say, here's what it means. It's not just giving the context. It's not just giving the background. It's not just giving the details. There's something, I say again, profoundly spiritual, where the Spirit of God must be at work. And when Paul comes into that synagogue, Luke uses this word, opening. In other words, he's not just saying that he, 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 is, he is opening up the Word of God and he's beginning to teach, but the Spirit attends the preaching. As he opens the Word and he points to Jesus Christ, so the hearts of men are being opened as well. The Spirit of God is moving in the proclamation of the Gospel. And beloved, this is absolutely crucial. I've already talked about it. I've emphasized it a couple of times. Last week, Wednesday night, I emphasize it again. We must experience, we must know, we must seek from God the activity of the Holy Ghost when the Word of God is open. Not just for me, but for the Sunday school teachers and for everyone involved in any ministry, yea, even every last one of us, as God gives us opportunity to witness for Him to sinners. There has to be the opening. The opening being something where the Spirit of God comes and takes the mere efforts of men to communicate the gospel to be something that enters into dead men and makes them live. This is miraculous. This is something none of us can achieve or do. Not one of us. There's no amount of learning. There's no amount of doing anything that can make a difference here. This opening must be done in conjunction with the Holy Spirit upon our lives and upon our efforts. I need it, beloved. I trust you will learn it very quickly. You know, something you want—you want to preach well. You want to preach well. You want to do your best. And yet, you know what's good sometimes is to preach really badly, and for everyone to be aware, he needs the Lord's help. That man needs the Lord's help. That wouldn't be a bad thing if we learned what we needed to learn. I trust it's not every week, but sometimes you may be reminded of it. And I encourage you every time, every time you experience bad preaching where it seemed that he's not getting away with it today. As we used to say in college, a friend of mine and myself, we would, we'd go and preach in some of our churches. We'd come back together into college on the Monday, and we'd ask each other, well, how did you get on? And we'd ask each other that, and sometimes, inevitably, the response was from both of us, well, this meeting was okay, the Lord gave help in the morning or something, but maybe one of the meetings we would say it was like plowing concrete. In other words, you're getting nowhere. You're making no progress. You felt like you were on your own. And the words were just falling off the other side of the pulpit, not entering into the hearts of those that you're trying to reach. It's a very real experience. But if we have it, if that happens here, get you before God. We have to have this, this divine opening where the Spirit of God opens the Scriptures, where your hearts burn within you as Christ in His glory is presented as we are pointed to the Lamb, as we are consoled by the Gospel. I mean, I can preach my heart out. I can bring all the greatest language. I can quote the greatest preachers. I can use all my powers to encourage your heart, and you will not receive encouragement 
unless the Spirit of God comes. We need the Spirit of God. We need Him in every utterance, in every effort. And you need Him as well. And this is the word, very interesting in my study for today, to see just how this word is used very occasionally, but in this very concentrated way, in a miraculous fashion, opening, opening. It's used one time, of course, of the, the opening of the womb with the meal and the offering that needed to be offered there. And you could argue even that in some way is miraculous. But often it is, it is focused on this preaching Christ and the spiritual activity that goes on then when hearts are truly touched. This work of the Holy Spirit was what happened in this church, in this city. In fact, if you go back to the epistle and you look at chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, what does Paul record there? This, is, this wasn't always the case. This didn't happen every week and every time he preached in every city he went to. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Our gospel came not unto you in word only. Beloved, we'll, we'll get to that text. I don't want to preach it now. But that can happen. You preach, and it's word only preaching. It is just words. It's information. It's truth. Yes, it's truth. But you don't want just the word. You don't want word only ministry. He's able to say, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. That's what happened when they went there. Paul's memory of it is joyful. The Lord attended our efforts in that place. There was a tremendous sense of God helping, of giving favor, and souls being converted powerfully on that occasion. And he says alleging, opening and alleging, back to Acts chapter 17. The idea of this word alleging is setting before. In fact, it's a compound word. It leads with the preposition para, which means to, to, to come near something. And so it's, there's this idea of coming near. But in what sense is it coming near? Well, the other word means to lay down. So when Paul went in and opening and alleging, this word alleging was, was, was laying down near them. He was laying something down near them. And what was he laying down near them? That Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. In other words, what Paul's effort was given to was putting Christ within the reach of men and women. He didn't want to lay it down far beyond their reach. He didn't want to lay the gospel beyond their reach. He wanted to lay it down right in front of them. And he used again all of his effort, all of his power, all of his strength, all of his intellect. And depending upon the Spirit of God, he laid down Christ at the feet of the Jews in that synagogue. And this is what we're called to do, is it not? We're not called to go out into the world and make the gospel difficult. We're not called to go out there to those that we work with or those that we study with or wherever we are in our neighborhoods and go to men and women and make the gospel complicated. We're to make it simple. We're to lay it down before their feet near them. And this is what we need to be at, beloved, in whatever way we can, by the help of the Lord. And you see what he laid before them, that Christ must needs have suffered, risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. He went in there three Sabbath days, and he told those Jews that Christ must suffer. Now he needed to establish that. And so he went to the relevant scriptures, 
Isaiah 53, no doubt. Other passages, perhaps. And he made this point. Christ, that is Messiah, must suffer. And so he establishes that point. He makes it plain that they don't have this idea, this false idea, the Messiah comes, comes to his throne in Jerusalem, conquers all the enemies all around Israel, and reigns there, making life pleasant for all the Jews. This idea that even the apostles were, were, were prone to fall into, that, that the Messiah will come and just kind of sweep away all of Israel's enemies, and reign there supreme in Jerusalem. This is where their minds went. When they, when they read Scriptures, and there's Scriptures there, of course. There are Scriptures that speak of the reigning of Messiah. Well, everyone wants to hear the encouraging message. Everyone wants to, to focus in on that which encourages their hearts. And so they, they focus in on this, this reigning Messiah. This mighty one that's promised. And He's going to come and deal with the Romans and all of our enemies. But the Scripture also speaks... Of a suffering Messiah. And this, they were not so prone to focus upon. And this is what Paul seeks to establish. Christ must, needs, suffered. So he makes it plain, prophetically. Our fathers have told us. The prophets speak to us. Christ must suffer. But he also must rise again from the dead. You want to see a sermon that, that fleshes this out? Go to Acts chapter 2. See Peter's sermon. He, he's basically preaching out this information. <laughs> he's dealing with this. He's dealing with the suffering Messiah. He's dealing with the, the risen Messiah. He goes to Psalm 16. He, he points to the fact that, there, that there's one who, 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 who must rise from the dead. That David looked to one and pointed to one who would rise again. So he deals with the same topics, the same subjects, the same truths, the same theology. But then he begins to tell them that this Jesus whom I preach unto you, Jesus of Nazareth, he's that Christ. And that's where the uproar <laughs> comes in. Well, in all of it, but certainly when he is pointing back to the one who had lived and died and rose again just a matter, a number of years ago, and you see the response, you see what happens. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But this, this focus on Christ, you remember what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39? Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Jews couldn't see it. They refused to see it. They didn't want to see it. They rejected it outright. And what Jesus was saying in John chapter 5, and elsewhere, in fact, but in a very clear way, he's saying that if you would actually read the Scriptures, if you would pay attention to all that the Word of God reveals in the Old Testament, you will see that it speaks of me. And as we've already seen in Luke chapter 24, he does that. He, he begins at Moses and shows all that concerns himself before those two in the road to Emmaus. And so this is our, this is our business. Beloved, this is, this is what we are called to do. This is the foundation of every church, the foundation of all outreach, the foundation of the primary work that we're about, <laughs> is going out into the world, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and so on. If this is the one thing we do, 
will have much to thank the Lord for. Again, the Lord may open up other ministries. There may be other things that we put our hands to that, that aren't focused upon preaching the gospel in the sense of the way we understand it. Maybe certain aid and help in various ways that we exercise ourselves. But, but the, this has to be foundational in all that we do, in everything that we give ourselves to. This opening and alleging about Christ, bringing Christ before men. Now I know each one of us, we, if, if you look into your heart like I look into mine, you will feel the same way I feel. Powerless. You will have a history, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you will have a history of trying to bring the gospel to men, of trying to preach Christ and feeling miserably. <laughs> You'll probably have more memories of that than of making progress and seemingly making an impact in someone's life. You will know that. So, so history tells you History tells you that, by and large, people don't want to hear it. Or, I'm just really bad at it, and I can't do it. Or some other argument. And you, you say, you, you can't, I can't give myself to this because of the past failures. Who is sufficient for these things, beloved, really? There's not one of us. What we can remember here this morning is that God has promised us assistance. In John chapter 15, verse 26, He reminded His disciples, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. Now, it's not the only thing the Spirit does. But it's one of the primary things that He does. And if we would get filled more, not with a sense of our inability, but more with a sense of God's promise to assist us, it might dispel our fear and help us to be consistent in the labor of preaching the gospel in the way that we know really deep down we are called to do. If we focus only on, I can't do it, or the world doesn't want to hear it, or I have just a history of failure in this area, then we'll not do it. If that's all you think about, if all you think about is failure, you will never go forward. Anyone who has ever accomplished anything, some of you sitting here, you know what it's like to fail an exam, but you also know what it's like to continue on. That you didn't let the failure hold you back from the goal. That you had something in your mind and your heart, and you applied yourself yet again. Some of you maybe know what it's like to fail something over and over and over again. And yet still you applied yourself. Still you gave yourself to it. And eventually you come through. Many within business, we, we hear about those who, who are successful. And yet when you read their life, we see the success. And yet they'll tell you the backdrop to it. Well, I tried this and I failed this. And I tried this and I failed in that. And it just failure after failure after failure after failure. But they kept going on. And if any group of individuals have reason to persevere in something, it is the Christian. God has promised divine assistance. He says, don't, he is not telling us go out on your own and you need to have the eloquence of Paul. You need to have the knowledge of the apostle. No. Now, if you open and allege, if you, if you seek to 
bring the gospel and you plead for the attendance of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Ghost in your life, then as you lay Christ near to people, as you put the gospel within reach of sinners, the Lord will use it. The history of the church proves this. Now if you're looking for 100% success, you're not going to get it. It's not going to happen. It didn't happen here. And this brings us in Thirdly, to the battles. The battles. And we'll just be brief with this. There are battles. And we see them here. Verse 4. And some of them believed. And consorted with Paul and Silas. Well, that's encouraging. But they come alongside. And of the Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. This is the outcome. Satan opposes their efforts. Has Paul won the vast majority of the city? No, he hasn't. He probably even hasn't won the vast majority of the synagogue. The whole city moves against them. Some have been converted. A few gather. And they stand with Paul and Silas. Jason being one of them. And there are others there. Chief women. Significant women. They're influenced as well. Devout Greeks also. It spills over. I think the idea of devout Greeks is that Greeks that had, were, had converted to Judaism. They'd given themselves to that religion. And that they're being influenced. And they're being converted. But that, that's not where it ends. That's not where it's left. These Jews, the vast bulk of them, move with envy. I tell you, envy is a, is a, is a nasty sin. <laughs> it leads lead you into all sorts of awful crimes. See, it didn't stop with envy. Envy drives action that is a crime against God and against man. And this is their envy. It can't be restrained. And this is why if you ever sense envy, you need, to, you need to kill it quickly. Because as it breeds and festers, as it continues to be allowed room to grow within your heart, there's no saying where it might lead and what actions may result out of it. Their envy causes them to take these certain people, these lewd people, these, these baser people, these corrupt and evil and Certainly not spiritual people. And they could be encouraged to gather and turn against the apostles. Opposition. The very message that brought Christians joy produced envy in the unbeliever. And this is what we can expect will happen. What a dividing character the Lord Jesus Christ is. He said himself, he came not to bring peace but a sword, didn't he? And that's what happens here on this occasion. In J.C. Ryle's book, Warnings to the Churches, he said something that is very interesting. Just the way he, he elevates the Lord Jesus Christ. But the world doesn't see Him in this way. He said this, Christ is the way. Men without Him are kings, wanderers, vagabonds. His is the truth. Men without Him are liars, 
like the devil of old. He is the life. Men without him are dead in trespasses and sins. He is the light. Men without him are in darkness and go they know not whither. He is the vine. Men that are not in him are withered branches prepared for the fire. He is the rock. Men not built on him are carried away with a flood. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the author and the ender, the founder and finisher of our salvation. He that hath not him hath neither beginning of good, nor shall have end of misery. End quote. And so you have these two opposing forces in the world. You have those who come to Jesus Christ. You have those who, who are drawn in by the preaching. You have those, as, as Paul opens, and they all hear the same message. And the Spirit of God is coming and taking that message, but it is being driven home to certain hearts, to certain minds, into certain lives. They don't all receive it in the same way. And the same is here. I'll tell you, beloved, if I was easily discouraged, if any faithful preacher was easily discouraged, they would stop very quickly in their efforts. Because they stand and they declare the Word and they preach the Gospel and they look for a response. And more often than not, they never get the response that they seek for, that they pray for, that they look for. But we have to keep on trusting the Lord is using His Word and praying more and more continually, Lord, give us the Spirit of God. So as the Word is opened, it's not Word only. But you'll please to attend it and draw in your elect. Save those for whom you have died. And of course, these men have a reputation. They have turned the world upside down, haven't they? That's what we're told. Verse 6, they've turned the world upside down. <laughs> what a testimony. What a testimony. The world in its pride always thinks that it has nothing wrong with it. leads largely. I mean, some sinners will say there, there's, there's problems in the world, but there's, there's seldom really problems with themselves. And whenever they complain about the world, <laughs> it's usually because they're, they're the victims of something. They don't really see the problem in their own life. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that by and large, the world, every individual man thinks he's the right way up. I think there's nothing wrong with him. Don't realize the extent of his sin, has no awareness of how rebellious he is, how heinous he is before God. No awareness of that, really, at all. But, but there's always problems in the world. There's problems with the politicians, and there's problems with those in high places, and there's problems with their neighbors, or whatever. But not with themselves. And this is, this is the view of them. These men are turning the world upside down. No, no, as often has been said, they're turning it the right way up. They're bringing men to know their God. And beloved, we, we, we realize that, that we are not to be the same way as the world is. These men came in and turned the world upside down. At least that's the testimony of the ungodly. They're turning them around. There's, there's a 180 going on, whatever you want to say of it. There's a 180 going on. In other words, these men are different from those to whom they preach. And they're writing men. And that does not mean they go in and say, stay as you are. You hear it all the time. Churches and their literature, come as you are, and all this kind of... And language to that effect, that, uh, or of, of, in that nature and in that vein. Come as you are, you know, all this kind of way. And... And I think to myself, well, you know, I have no problem with that. You come as you are. You come as you are. Whatever condition you're in, you come as you are. But if you stay as you are, something's wrong. Something's wrong. This turned the world upside down. This was not them coming in with a new philosophy 
And like, oh, well, we can kind of, we can imbibe some of that and, and kind of, in some kind of form of syncretism, take on some of your beliefs and combine them with their own beliefs and live on as we please. It changes things. It changes lives. It changes hearts. It turns things around. Now, clearly then, the Christian life is different from the world. It has to be. We're not the same. And if we continue on with this way that I think largely the church is going, I mean, I'm amazed that Horatius Bonner said what he said when he said it. I think if some of these men were living now, they, they couldn't believe their eyes. And what I mean is, when Bonner said, I looked for the church and I found it in the world, I looked for the world and I found it in the church. And, I mean, what would he say today? <laughs> I looked for the church and I couldn't find it at all. It's not there. No, that's not the case. Thank the Lord. But you do have to ask the question, where's the distinction between believers and unbelievers? Where, where's the difference of life? We want so much to be liked, to be accepted, to be received by man. You know what that is? It's a form of idolatry that dethrones Christ and elevates man. First ourselves, because we want to be liked and we elevate our own hearts. Then it also elevates the opinions of other men. Puts them also on the throne where Christ belongs. As a form of idolatry that the Lord wants nothing to do with. I'm not saying that you go out and you have to be kind of abrasive and hateful and obnoxious and the kind of person no one wants to be near. I am not saying that. But if you love men, you love their hearts, you love their souls, you love them for what they are in the image of God, they are made. And you seek with compassion and zeal and fervor. And you combine all your words with an activity that reaches out to them, that asks them into your home. That book that was published last year. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Very good book. That's just one way. Just one way in which we show people by bringing them into our homes that we actually care. But it's not just to put food before them. It is to get the Gospel into their hearts. There has to be evangelistic effort. We need to be distinct. We need to be different as these men were seeking to right a city that had been long enslaved in its sin and corrupted by false teaching. I've said enough, I think, for this morning as far as setting the scene for the church that we're going to be looking at, the letter that we will study in coming weeks, God willing. But I want us to be encouraged as we begin our study in First Thessalonians, it is a church, as I say, in some way is a model for us. Chapter 1 is going to be convicting. <laughs> because even though the apostle wasn't able to spend the time there that he wanted, even though he, didn't, he wasn't able to encourage them and teach them the way he was in Ephesus, spending three years there, or in Corinth, spending a year and a half there, even though that was not the case, they latched on to the truth that they were given. And they ran with it. With all their hearts. And God did amazing things. Amazing things. Simple people. Used powerfully. By God with whom nothing is impossible. 
Where there is suffering, God's people can prevail. That is what we will learn. Though the world come against us and say, stop it, be silent, give up, Christians will continue to not just persevere, but to prevail. I wish we could see it. I wish, oh beloved, I wish we could just see the next outpouring of the Spirit of God. You say, what next outpouring? You think there's going to be one? Yes, I do. I do. If the Lord tarries, there will be an outpouring of the Spirit upon the church that will impact the community. There will be. Why do I say that? Because there always has been. All the time, where the church is there and present, at some point, God is pleased to meet with a little group of people who seek Him in earnest and have one, one desire. His glory in the nations. His glory in their community. His glory in their family. His glory in their lives. And when they prioritize that, things begin to happen. I trust that as we see what happened in Thessalonica and how the Apostle was so encouraged that we too will be led to a similar kind of life and be encouraged by their example. Let's bow together in prayer. So I'll seek the Lord. Lord, we just cry that you'll bless the word that has been preached. We need much help. We don't want to just learn of an example and be uninfluenced by it. What a tragedy that we would learn all that happened in that great city. But it wouldn't really drive us forward. That their example would fall on deaf ears. That we would be happy to continue on in a vein where we are not seeking to follow in their footsteps. Lord, give us the help that we need. We just, I know the hearts of so many here today are just like mine. It just seems so impossible. The world seems to prevail so powerfully against us. But help us to remember that Christ is reigning. He is alive forevermore. As we sit at the table today, let us realize we're sitting at the table because He is alive forevermore. And because He is reigning. And because, as Psalm 2 puts it, that He is laughing at His enemies. And Lord, we pray Thou wilt help us to enter into the joy, the joy of being ambassadors for Christ in our day and generation. Let us look with hope for the outpouring that we need. May it come even sooner than we think. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our brother's going to lead us just as we have a closing hymn and a couple of verses. And then for those who are able to stay behind, please stay for the Lord's table. Thank you.